We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through to 9, so I'll just give you a moment to get that out. Should be page 927 of the Pew Bibles. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One is this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widow, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Thank you, Nick. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, we're beginning our series again, or kicking off our series uh, in 1 Corinthians. So that's why we're on this passage, in this random passage in the middle of 1 Corinthians. Um, it's, it is a good passage for us to reflect on and hear from God together. Before we do, though, I'm going to pray. Um, and yeah, welcome to those who are new or are visiting amongst us. Um, as we always do, we want to pray before we come be- before God's word, as we together engage with what God has to say to us. So I'm going to pray. Our good and our gracious God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it's useful for us. And we thank you that it shows us about who you are, your character, and reveals the Lord Jesus, shows us what it means to live in your kingdom, to live as if Jesus were us. Father, I pray that as I preach, that my words will be yours and that you work through us by your spirit. Whether we're in the room or across the screen, help us to hear you and hear you clearly for what it means to our life, whatever situation or circumstance we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name, amen. So a number of years ago, probably about four or so, uh, I found myself asking my wife, Elizabeth, like, can you see that thing over there? Or... Um, we got this new TV and I was pretty disappointed with the quality of the TV and we were like looking at road signs and I was like, can you read that? I needed glasses. It became pretty clear uh, that that was the case. And so I went to an optometrist and as a, if you do need glasses, you'll know you go there and you look in these things and they flick these um, lenses, basically backwards and forwards until you get to the right one. In my case, I don't know what prescription I need, but it's long distance. To you, you're all a little bit blurry to me. Here is nice and clear. If I want to see something that's in the distance, if I want to see it for its true goodness and beauty, I need to put my glasses on. And for many of us, that's the case uh, in physical life. But when it comes to us living for the glory of God, when it comes for us who want to live as the people of Jesus in this world, if we want to persevere until the end, then we need to see the world as God sees it. We need to, in a sense, put our gospel glasses on. We need to see how it is that the gospel shapes every single aspect of our life, shapes our identity, shapes the way that we live, shapes the way we see others and engage in the world. And that is exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians. 
In 1 Corinthians, he basically takes who Jesus is, the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, it talks about the cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. And he talks about all these different aspects of life from chapters 1 through to 15 and shows how the gospel helps us to see how to live whatever this aspect of life is. That's important in Corinthian culture as much as it is today. A.W. Tozer, who's an author, pastor, theologian from uh, mid-century last year, last century, said this, too much of contemporary Christianity is borrowed from the philosophies of the world and even other religions, phrases and mottos that on the surface look good, look great, but they're not rooted in scripture and mostly bolster one self-image. Friends, it is so easy for us to do that. We hear a nice quote, we hear a nice, see a nice meme, we want to share it. It feels good in some way. But if we don't put our gospel glasses on, if we don't see how it is that the gospel is either affirming it, correcting it, challenging it, then we're going to walk away from Jesus. Now, Paul's solution, every time that he comes to one of these issues that he addresses in Colossians, he always just puts Jesus in front. He shows how it is the person and the way of Jesus informs all these different aspects of life. So we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if you remember, we started our series last year, this time. Uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians 1 to 6. And I said in that, in that sermon series, that context in 1 Corinthians is so important. To actually understand what's going on in the time and in the letter and in the culture of Corinth is, I don't want to say more important than other letters or whatever it may be, but very, very important. And so we did a big bunch of that last year. I just want to take us through a very quick summary of what it means for us to engage in the culture and the city of Corinth as we get into the letter. Now, Corinth, 2,000 years ago, it's in Greece, and it's an extremely strategic and attractive city to go to. It's a big opportunity to get rich, Big opportunity to grow in the social ladder. Lots of people are traveling through there because they are workers, they're merchants, they're sailors, they want to make a buck, whatever it may be. It's a very pluralistic city, which means there's so many different religions and cultures and the way that people want to engage with the spiritual world. It's cosmopolitan, meaning there's so many different people of different nationalities and cultures there. It is sex-soaked. There is so much sexuality and expressions uh, that are going on in the city. Now, if I took out Corinth and I put in Sydney, there's not much different, right? There's a lot of similarities between the Corinthian culture and the Christian culture. Now, this brings us to the letter. Now, any letter that's written is always written for a reason. There's always a, a, an occasion and a purpose now, Paul, he planted the church in Corinth um, a number of years before. You can read about it in Acts 18. But he's left. But he's heard two things have happened. He's heard some reports. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, it says it's been reported to you that there's, reported to him, sorry, that there's been these divisions. And he goes through a bunch of things that he's heard about from the Corinthians. And then in this part of the letter, he turns to a whole bunch of different matters. Matters to which they've written about it appears that the Corinthians have written Paul a letter. Now, we don't have the letter, but what we can gather from it, they're not the most friendly in their tone to Paul. Uh, it's not like, Paul, give us some nice spiritual advice. They're kind of a bit more forceful, much more uh, corrective and challenging of Paul. In any case, he's going to address this letter, and that's what we're going to see for the next 
term as we engage in these chapters. It's a bit like uh, if, you know, when you were in Messenger and you're having a conversation and then you hold on one of the messages and press reply and you want to look at that specific thing. That's what Paul is doing here. Now, in chapter 7, this whole chapter is about relationships. It's about marriage and celibacy. It's about sex and it's about singleness. It's not a complete theology on all these things by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, It addresses some particular issues that the Corinthians have. Now, in our context, in church world, um, this is a really significant and it's an important issue. And I will say that often in the church, and Nawi is no exception to this, that sometimes it can seem that we value marriage and family above singleness. I've heard that. I see it. Um, and what we clearly see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that that is not the case. Marriage and singleness, they ultimately do not define a person. They ultimately don't bring them value or make them more or less loved by God. Both are good. Both in some way point towards the eternal kingdom. So what we're going to explore over the next three weeks is these three things. Single, marriage, sex, singleness. For tonight, chapter 7, 1 to 7, God's word is always useful and it's good. The specific topic tonight is sex within marriage. Marriage uh, and sexual relationship between a man and a woman. So I do want to say at this point, talking about sex and sexuality can be a really sensitive topic. For a whole range of reasons, maybe there's some guilt or shame or hurt, frustration, pain, emotions and feelings uh, can come straight to the surface. Maybe you're really comfortable engaging in this topic, maybe it makes you feel really uncomfortable. First and foremost, please know that God loves us deeply, that he redeems all aspects of our life, that he's on a mission to redeem this world. And us as the pastors want to be able to care for you and walk beside you. We cannot save you. We take you to the one who can. Um, And we want to walk beside you if you would like that. Or please reach out to a trusted friend or marriage counsellor or something like that. If something comes up to you that's really unhelpful or, uh, sorry, not unhelpful, but uh, brings up something unhelpful within you um, from what we've discussed tonight. With that said, let's engage with 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Have a look at chapter 1. Hopefully you've got your Bibles open with you. Now you'll notice there it says, uh, for matters which we wrote about, and then there's some quotation marks. There's some quotation marks around, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now our Bible translators are really helpful there. They're basically saying, this is the Corinthian quote. It comes from the letter. We don't know if it's verbatim or if this is generally what they're saying. Uh, But Paul quotes them. Now, for whatever reason, some Corinthians are doing the opposite of what another section of the Corinthians are doing in chapter 6. In chapter 6, sex is free, do it with whoever you want, however you want, with prostitutes, it's fine. Here, some people are saying that no, people should be not having sex at all, whether or not you're married. Now, why would the Corinthians say that? Our culture would definitely say the opposite. It sounds, seems strange. We're not exactly told, but what we gather from the letter as a whole is that it's clear a number of Corinthians are claiming to be more spiritual. They're seeking a greater spiritual connection with God and in the sense that gives them greater social status within the church. 
And so what they're saying is, it is better for my, sexual, for my spiritual well-being to not have sexual relations. In other words, I can have a better relationship with God and therefore be more spiritual if I abstain. So in their answer to the question, what does spiritually have to do with sex, spirituality have to do with sex, they're saying it degrades me. And so I'm not going to do it. I want to love God with my whole being. Now that kind of sounds like a good thing to do in some way, shape or form. But that attitude is actually exceptionally selfish. That's a very selfish thing. In some case here, the husband is not considering or is downplaying his commitment to his wife. Their focus has become selfish in a selfish pursuit of spiritual things, not a Christ-like pursuit. So right at the outset, the underlying issue that Paul is going to address and tackle, even though he gets very specific, is do not have a selfish spirituality. Do not seek after God or seek after the things of God and put down others, make others collateral. Chase after God at the expense of others. If we were to do that, that's like if you were in any kind of sport team, say football, soccer, which I'm most familiar with, and you go around tackling your own teammates. You just don't do that. It's the very opposite of what you're trying to do. And that's what Paul is saying here. So whether you're married or whether you're not, in any form of spiritual pursuit, it cannot be selfish, especially if it's at the expense of others. We follow Jesus. Jesus, who is the one who did and the one who commanded, love the Lord your God and to love others. That's the overarching principle. And then we get to the specifics. Paul taps in directly on this issue of marriage. And he says, There's a mutual giving of a husband and wife to serve each other. Have a read with me, verses 2 through to 4. In reaction to the quote, he says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority of her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority of his own body, but yields it to his wife. In some ways, the basic message is pretty clear. No Corinthians, sex should happen in marriage. Abstinence is not what should be occurring. Husbands and wives should be having sexual relations with one another. Sex within marriage is not dirty or wrong or unspiritual or anything like that. Now, he's given two reasons. The first reason was because talking about the sexual morality that's going on in the city and going on within the church. And Paul is saying God is not against sex. He's for sex in its right place. Now, in some way, it does contribute to the avoiding of temptation, but it also wants to be seen in a positive light, advocating for it in how God intends, not the cheap and abusive ways that are going on in the culture and in some aspects of the church. Then we get the second reason in verse 3 and 4, which says that married people have a commitment to one another. And they have a commitment with their whole self, which includes their body. Now, as a general rule, most people in society, secular or not, is in favour of sex within marriage. If you're, maybe, if you're not a Christian, you probably have a bit more of a liberal view around sex. However, the language that Paul uses here is very confronting. It's a bit abrasive to us. It feels a bit off. Um, but it's actually it's really vitally important that we understand what Paul is trying to communicate here. If we want to understand the heart of God for 
a flourishing marriage. The verse says that husbands and wives should equally fulfill his or her marital duty and yield authority of their body to their husband or their wife. In the words of Eugene Peterson, he writes, the marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other. Mutuality is so important. Now we've noticed, um, or you would have noticed, that husbands and wives have the exact same commands here. There's not one thing for the husband and another thing for the wife. It is exactly the same. It is mutual. Now for the Corinthians at the time, for the men, that would have been, whoa, Paul, that's a bit intense. The wife did not have the same rights in any way in that society. Uh, But Paul is saying that they do. For us, that's not as abrupt, but we are equally offended in a different way. Our culture says things along the lines of do what is right for you. Look after yourself first. Your body, your rights. So to suggest that a marriage partner has authority over you and you have a duty to them, that seems very stark. However, Paul is suggesting and what the Bible is saying is that is how marriages flourish. To be mutual to be sacrificial, both sides, to be sacrificial. See, when Paul talks about love in the letter, this is the kind of stuff that he, he says. Later in the chapter, in verses 33 to 34, he says, love always seeks to please others, not themselves. Verse 10 says that love does not seek its own advantage. In, verse, in chapter 13, it says love is patient and love is kind, not self-seeking or insisting on its own way. And so that must apply to all Christian relationships. And as it looks in marriage, it means that sex cannot be about, you have to satisfy my desire. That cannot be what it's about. Rather, we yield our own desire in order to seek, and ser- to, seek to serve the other. To be very specific, that means at times married people should have sex and other times they should not. That's up for the, up for the couple to decide. I won't give specifics on that one. As for, go, as for how that goes, um, if you're married now or you hope to be in the future, you need to discuss that with your partner and, and understand that between yourselves well. It is important, though, that I want to highlight two misuses of the passage. Two misuses that some way I've heard, but certainly I've um, come across uh, recently in things I've heard other people say and read. The first misuse is if in some way, shape or form we say, Have sex with me always and at any time because the Bible says so. That might seem obvious, but it's actually a very short straw to get from that saying or from the Bible to that saying. saying. If we are to say something like that, that actually undermines the whole theology, the whole point of what Paul is trying to say here. That, if we had that attitude, that would make sex all about me, all about you, the individual. Married Christians do not follow that pattern of self-gratification because their focus should always be on their spouse and vice versa. Our bodies, if you are married, is under the authority of your spouse and you can't demand things out of our self-interest. Married people relinquished that right when they got married. The second misuse is this. Have sex with your spouse or they'll find it somewhere else. Now, 
again, it's kind of easy. You can see how people can get that from the passage because Paul talks about sexual immorality twice and somewhat he gives it as a reason in order to be sexually active. However, if you adopt this kind of attitude across your marriage, that is not about faithfulness, that is about fear. Marriages should be unwavering in love, not pressure and manipulation and fear that they're going to leave or cheat on you. It also means just because one, um, just because one spouse isn't having sex with the other, it doesn't give the other one a license to go and commit sexual morality in some way, shape, or form. We all have personal responsibility about what we do and what we don't do with our bodies. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And in chapter 10, Paul is going to go on to say, no temptation has come across a person which is too great. He'll always provide a way out. So Paul is not saying something nearly as strong as that at all. He is saying that perhaps there's additional weight to the temptation for both women and for men if married couples are not having a meaningful sexual relationship. So what are the good uses? What is Paul actually trying to really communicate to us? The right use of this passage is to say marriage should be about seeking to love and serve our partner. That is the overall ethic that he's getting out here in every aspect of our life. Now, again, I want to be specific or concrete of what that looks like if you're married now or will be in the future. But consider how it is that your sex life can be expressed in a way where both the husband and the wife are seeking to love and serve your partner. Again, sometimes this will mean having sex. Other times it will mean not having sex. Discuss that with one another. Paul is implying regularity here, but he's not giving any specifics again. So how does that relate to Jesus? How does that relate to the gospel? What does spirituality have to do with sex? As Christians, that we're seeking to live the way that Jesus would if he were us. That's what it looks like. What would Jesus do if he were me? Now, Jesus is not married. He's actually the greatest man on earth and he was single, right? He didn't have sex. But if he were married, how would he live? How would he treat his wife in that case? He would act the same way that we've seen him consistently act in the rest of his life, which is the ultimate servant of people. And he's the ultimate, and he is a lover of people, not himself. All his teaching and his miracles and his conversations are about him sacrificially dying to himself in order to bless others, all to the point where he goes to the cross, dies on the cross for other people. He's the ultimate server and lover of people. And therefore, that should be the character of all of our lives, if we're married or if we're not, and if we are married, especially to our wife. There is a time that, as we've seen in the passage, that sometimes sex should stop within marriage. As we've explored, husbands and wives should be lovingly serving one another. But then Paul does say there is a time within marriage that sex should stop. If you have a look with me, verses 5 through to 6, It says, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because you have a lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. Now, there's a bunch of things going on here. There's actually kind of five elements, and I think if we just go through them, that will make uh, the most sense. There's 
you can see them on, on the screen there. The first one is like a command or something that you should do. And when he says, do not deprive. Now, what that means is don't steal, don't defraud, don't rob from. One of the other misuses of this passage or understanding of sex for Christians is we cannot use it to weaponize, we shouldn't weaponize sex or use it as a form of manipulation. Sex is not to be demanded and sex is also not to be earned. Sex is not a power chip to be used in the Christian marriage. Of course, we need to work to cultivate love and intimacy and safety and security and care. But what I hear when I'm chatting with people, what I witness on my Instagram feed and just in culture in general, is that men and women are often weaponizing or using sex as a point of power. And friends, if you're Christian, we don't do that. But there is an exception. Uh, To get back to what he's saying here, he says, there is an exception to abstain by mutual consent. So is it a time to stop? It's a decision that must be mutual between the husband and the wife, both a degree, not be coerced. And then there's a boundary. So there's a time... Uh, for it to stop, and then a time to come back together. It's a bit like a fast. When you fast from food or whatever it may be, there's a time where you stop doing that thing in order to have um, some kind of more intentional pursuit of God for whatever reason, shape, or form. So there's an actual time where it would be helpful. Paul doesn't give the time that it should be, a week, a fortnight, a month, whatever it may be. He doesn't give the time. That's for the couple to decide. But then what's coming together back again is, um, is that it's not permanent. Then we get the purpose. The purpose being that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So just like fasting, right, there is a kind of spiritual element that helps us focus on God or his work in the world, maybe something in your relationship, what's going on in your life, whatever it may be. And the act of sacrificing something in your life, in this case, sex within marriage, is what is happening. Perhaps sex has got in the way of your relationship with God in some way, shape, or form. You're idolizing it thinking that you have to have it. If you don't have it, suddenly your life is a ruin. Maybe it's helpful to stop for a time. Devote yourself to prayer. Maybe there's something going on in your life where you want to commit, okay, we're going to have this time to come to God as a couple, whatever it may be. The power of a praying couple is immense. But then we get the risk. If you're not coming back together, otherwise Satan will tempt you because you have a lack of self-control. I think, for friends, we've got to remember that we're in a spiritual battle. We're against flesh and blood, against the powers and principalities of this world. Our flesh is weak, and others, most of us here are going to have very different aspects or levels of self-control. But Satan's evil forces are going to use our lack of self-control to prey on. It's going to pull us away from God, pull us away from our partner or our future partner, if that's the case. And Paul is saying, don't let Satan get a foothold. And what we see here is that there is great purpose and benefit to being devoted to prayer. We, we should be devoted in prayer in all aspects of our life. Paul is talking about marriage here. So in marriage, to be devoted to prayer. I was reading a book on prayer by Tim Kelly. And he tells a story about um, he and his wife. They didn't have a regular rhythm of prayer. Their life began to be really hectic. Some things were, lots of things were happening for them. And then they got some terrible news. And Tim Keller, he recounts the story of his wife sitting down with him and she said, along the lines of, Tim, if we don't pray every day, we're not going to make it. And Tim said, 
He can't recall exactly what it was. Was it the moment? Was it the clarity of her words? Was it the spirit working at that time? He says it's probably the spirit working in the moment and the words. But that changed the way that they did prayer together. And they have prayed every day since then. They've committed to prayer personally, engaging in the work of God amongst themselves in his work in the world. And they found such beauty and fruitfulness as they did it. So whether you want to fast from sex for a period or a time to foster regular prayer life or be disciplined in other times, and whether you're married or not, we are all called to be devoted to prayer. We saw that in Colossians chapter 4 when we looked at that in the Captivated by Christ series where Paul said, be devoted to prayer, be watchful and thankful. The power of a praying person engaging in the work of God in the world, both in communion with him and in intercession for the world, uh, is unmatched in anything that we can do. There is no time ever wasted in prayer. And then after Paul says that, he kind of then flips it all on its head. We hit verse 7. And in verse 7, we see that sex is not the key to fulfillment or sexuality. It is good and necessary, but sex is not everything. Not the key to fulfillment. In verse 7, he says, I wish you all as I am. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. And as we read into verse 8, we see that Paul is not married. He's a single man. Therefore, he's not having sex. Now, this comment is so countercultural for us. It's kind of like in shock. Whoa, man, are you serious? No, the single life is preferable to the married life. That is what he says. That is what the Bible is teaching at this point. And we'll talk more about singleness uh, when it comes to verses 25 through to 40 in a couple of weeks' time. But as it relates to sex, what it says to us is we should put it in its good, beautiful, and right place. We have a culture that celebrates relationships, that idolizes sex, that abuses it. And at times, that can make us feel, if you're not married, you're not having sex, whatever it may be, it can make you feel like you're less of a person. It can make you feel like you're not having life to the full or whatever it may be. Paul would say, don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. It's simply not true. See, Paul has a joyful, vibrant, God-honoring life without being married and without having sex. So as we apply our gospel glasses to this aspect of our life, we see it's good, it's part of God's good design, and sex is a necessary part of marriage, but it doesn't fulfill us. It doesn't make us whole. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can really fulfill us. Only Jesus can really make us whole. And that's important because we need to know that we need to seek Christ over sex. We need to seek Christ and serve others and not ourselves. That's what this passage is all about. Don't chase after your own desires, your own gratification, but seek to serve the other person. Matt Chandler, in his book called The Mingling of Souls, it's really a a book about Song of Songs, which, if you read it before, it's a celebration of marriage and The other layer of it is a celebration of God's love for his people. When he was talking about the aspects of sex in that book, he said this. Love the gift of sex and love your spouse. But it's not technique or romance that makes sex all that God intends. It's Jesus. 
He and he alone reconciles what went wrong in Genesis 3. He alone completely satisfies. Sex is good, but it's not built for eternity. It won't be around forever. Marriage, for that matter, will not be either. No, marriage and sex are good, but Jesus is better. He is better than anything in life. He's better than life itself because he is life. So friends, chase after Jesus in all the things that you do. He's the good shepherd that leads his sheep to good pastures to help us have life to the full, both now and into eternity. Of course, there's going to be a cost that comes when you're following Jesus. But don't think that sex is everything, that marriage is everything. If you are married, then live out the biblical ethic of what it looks like. But seek Jesus over sex. Serve others, not ourselves. And may that be the case within our marriage and in all the aspects of our life. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've designed us, that you breathe life into us. Jesus, we thank you that you've come and redeemed the world. God, we thank you that when we look back at Genesis 2, we see that you made man and woman and you brought them together before there was sin in the world. Father, for those of us in the room who are married or across the screen, for those of us that, that will be, we do ask that we have a marriage which reflects you, which reflects Christ and the church. But Father, also help all of us to see that marriage is not the epitome of being a Christian. Help us to live out whatever calling you've placed on our life, the joy to which you've called and that whatever season of life it is in, may we seek you with all our heart. May you get all the glory and we get the joy. And may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.